Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best The American Technion Society World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Nineteen ninety-two was a meaningful year for me. There were sad moments. My grandfather died, my dog Sunshine died, my favorite basketball player Larry Bird retired from the game. But there were also many good, even historical, things that happened that year. We shall not fight against each other. Boris Yeltsin and George Bush formally declared the end of the Cold War. The Cold War days are over. More than a billion people around the world watched the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, which raised millions of dollars for AIDS research. And the Vatican finally vindicated Galileo. The Pope said the church was sorry, but it was wrong. Admitting that Earth does, indeed, orbit around the sun. Now the Vatican even has its own astronomical observatory. In Israel, too, it was a dramatic year. In January, for the first time, we established diplomatic ties with China. Six months later, in June, Yitzhak Rabin won the elections, and the Labour Party returned to power. And on July 30th, nine days after my ninth birthday, I, together with basically everyone else in Israel, turned on the Olympics on TV to watch what was, till that moment, a pretty esoteric sport. It is Thursday, July 30th. The judo competition is about to get underway. 29 women are entered in the 134 and a half pound weight division. After a couple of victories in the preliminary rounds, Yael Arad was about to step onto the mat for the women's semifinals. Her opponent? Frauke Imke Eikhoff of Germany, the reigning world champion. Eikhoff is the favorite of many to win the gold medal. The winner would not only advance to the finals, but also guarantee herself at least a silver medal. 
Now, I should say that I was watching because Yael Arad was Israeli. The sport itself meant nothing to me. I couldn't really figure out what the hell was going on, or even who was ahead. But when you come from a small place like Israel, none of that matters. Any Olympic appearance is exciting. Yael beat Eikhoff and went on to the finals. She ended up losing the gold medal in a crushing and somewhat controversial decision. But nevertheless, with her second place finish, Yael Arad became the first Israeli ever to win an Olympic medal. Really, it's crazy. You come from a small country and you uh, have the chance to make an history. So this is crazy. Yael Arad, the greatest of Israel in the Olympiad of Barcelona, was today for the dream that was created. All the glory to you. We are proud of you. The entire country was ecstatic. But there wasn't much time to celebrate. See, the very next day, another Israeli judoka, 22-year-old Oren Smaja from Ofakim, made it to the bronze medal fight in the men's under 71 kilo category. He was up against the mighty Stefan Dott from Germany. Here's Oren. Look, Dott was the reigning European champion and the heavy favorite to win. But I remember stepping onto the mat without any fear. I was there to win. After 46 seconds, I managed to topple him. I raised my hands in the air and I was an Olympic medalist. It was a really sweet moment for me and for the entire state of Israel. After 40 barren years, we had won our first two Olympic medals in two miraculous days. And both of them were in a sport that, it's safe to say, most Israelis had never even heard about prior to that week. You know, it wasn't a popular sport. I can tell you that till 1992 it was all about soccer and basketball. Judo was just an after-school activity. When they returned to Israel, Yael and Oren were national heroes. Thousands of fans were waiting at the airport. They were immediately invited to meet the president and the prime minister. For months, their smiling faces were on the cover of every possible magazine. In the following Purim, of course, they were the most popular costumes. Judo, Yael says, became the hottest thing around. From the minute we came back, uh, Judo became really uh, something that everyone wanted to, to touch and, uh, and try. There was something incredibly relatable about them. According to Moshe Ponti, Oren's coach at the Olympics, a lot of the appeal was that Oren and Yael were both 100% local, two homegrown tzabarim. They're born in Israel, they're speaking Hebrew. They were any one of us, not so much untouchable Olympians, but rather regular people, the kind you'd bump into at the corner store or at the bank. I'm uh, young Yael from Tel Aviv. Uh, if I did it, everyone can do it. Suddenly, all the kids at school signed up for judo classes. The new clubs popped up in every neighborhood. It's become huge in Israel, really huge. Moshe, who is now the president of the Israeli Judo Federation, says that today there are tens of thousands of Israelis who practice judo. 60, 70,000, that's what we know. And what was it before 1992? Oh, it was a... Uh, I think a uh, hundred in all judo in Israel. When I started, when I was eight years old, there was one club in Tel Aviv. But since then, things have come a long way. Judo is now the third most popular sport in the country, trailing only soccer and basketball. And I'm delighted, you know. 
Today, judo is the leading Olympic sport in Israel. I think that uh, for the Israeli mentality, uh, judo is a very good sport because we are uh, warriors, you know. We, we grow up in this uh, country as warriors and uh, our attitude to life is very much uh, similar to, to uh, martial arts. The impact, however, ended up being much broader than just judo. The 92, it was the game changer. For the Israeli sport, there was a barrier that uh, no one really believed that they were able to cross it. And uh, once one of us, it was me, but it's one of us, uh, made it. It proved that uh, everything is possible. And now every children, every kid, every boy and girl that uh, starts sport uh, in Israel, it drives them to work hard. And I think this is the, the big change. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is the season five finale of Israel Story. Our episode today, Game Changer. We're going to hear a story of a dream. A dream to replicate the amazing and lasting popularity judo has enjoyed thanks to Yael and Oren's pioneering achievements. In the fall of 2019, the Israeli national baseball team played for a chance to represent the country in the Olympics. Now, this was a big deal. And it was a big deal for two reasons. First of all, only six teams in the entire world were going to have that honor. And second, Israelis by and large don't like baseball. Not even a bit. Because, let's face it, we're not known for our patience. And baseball, well, it's so slow. Sandy backs off, mops his forehead, runs his left index finger along his forehead, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keen just waiting. It's like the bumper-to-bumper traffic jam of sports. Now Sandy looks in. Into his wind-up and the 2-1 pitch to Keen. Long before COVID, our producer Joel Shupak went to Parque Yarkon in Tel Aviv to search for baseball fans. Instead, this is what he came across again and again. How you call that? Uh, it's called a bat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know anything about baseball? Oh, no, not too much, really. <laughs> the game is very boring. I know there is uh, someone that uh, uh, strikes the ball. You know there is uh, someone else that uh, throws the ball to him. The other team tries to catch the ball, uh-huh. and then they touch the, the station. How do you call it? The base? The base. <laughs> this is what I know. There are only about a thousand people in Israel who play baseball. That's kids, adults, fantasy players, everyone. So you might think this Olympic bid is the ultimate underdog story. Sort of the Jamaican bobsled team of the Middle East. But, as it turns out, it's a little more complicated than that. It's a story that has as many tears of pain as it does of joy. Here's Joel Shupak with Jews on First. Chilly raw air on a Sunday afternoon. Late September, here in Parma. Parma, Italy, a place better known for Parmesan cheese than baseball games. And yet, it is here that some of the best teams in Europe and Africa are facing off for a chance to play in the Summer Olympics. It's September of 2019, and after four days of fierce competition, two teams are on the field for the last time. He likes the sign, taken high. It's the final inning. There is no tomorrow for these two teams. One of the teams is South Africa. The other wears blue and white uniforms with the Star of David on their hats. Israeli baseball program has come out of nowhere to take the baseball world by storm. The fact that Israel is even in this tournament is a small miracle. But if you think that's something to celebrate. And now Israel is one strike away from making history. Team Israel is on the verge of winning the whole thing. If they can just close out this last game, they're going to the Olympics. But this is baseball. Anything can happen. The pitch. And this ball's flown out to right field. Simon Rosenbaum reaches up. We'll get back to that game later on. But before we do, I want to tell you about Israel's first national baseball team. The year was 1989. 
The entire country had exactly two baseball fields. One of them, I'm not making this up, was actually carved out of a cornfield by American kibbutzniks. Earlier that summer, army tanks and protesters clashed at Tiananmen Square. Nintendo released the Game Boy, and a new sitcom called Seinfeld premiered on NBC. And on the Rammstein Air Base in West Germany, the Israeli National Little League team was about to make its world debut. Dan Rotem from Tel Aviv was 11 at the time. To play on Team Israel, you had to know a little bit of baseball and had a pulse. So I qualified. Pulse? Yes. Uniforms? Not so much. This is Shlomo Lippitz, Dan's teammate. We were all wearing sweatpants with completely different hats. We had shirts that were printed in in one of those like mall t-shirt machines. That's right. The first national baseball team was made up of scrawny preteens in sweatpants. Many of them, like Dan, had only just started playing. I remember one of the coaches hitting a fly ball to me and I was running in, I was bending over and I caught that ball probably a couple of inches off the ground. And the coach just got so excited. I didn't even realize I did something worthy. But that was like the first baseball play that I remember. Not only was this Israel's very first tournament, but the very first game was against an unlikely rival, Saudi Arabia. And they beat us 51 to nothing. 51 to nothing. The next day, the Saudi authorities denied the existence of the game. Really? Yeah, I have pictures, though, so I can... Uh, <laughs> Prove that. But that epic defeat didn't really discourage Dan, Shlomo, and their friends. It was such a struggle just to put that team together that we couldn't care less. At the age of 10 years old, 11 years old, I was representing the country. I got to travel. At the end of the tournament, they flew back to Israel and kept on practicing. Year after year, Team Israel returned to that summer tournament. As long as you could play a little bit ball, your spot is kind of secure. And year after year, they were clobbered. Forget about winning. It wasn't until 1992, three years later, that they even scored a run against one of the other teams. I batted in the first run, still very remember taking the flag, running around the field in celebration. We lost 11 to one. You know, we scored a single run, good for us. So yeah, Team Israel had pretty humble beginnings. At the time, it would have been almost impossible to think that just three decades later, they'd be competing for a spot in the Olympics. And even harder for Dan and Shlomo to imagine that one of them would actually be on that team, while the other would be sitting at home, almost too heartbroken to watch the game. Both Dan and Shlomo are now in their early 40s. Dan lives in Tel Aviv and researches the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a small think tank. But my mind and my heart are invested more in baseball. He's tall with a shaved head and stubble. Honestly, he looks like a ball player. And when he talks about baseball, he just lights up. Shlomo too. I love the game of baseball so much. Shlomo also grew up in Tel Aviv. Nowadays, he lives in Brooklyn and organizes live concerts for City Winery, a chain of upscale venues across the U.S. He looks like a friendly giant, six foot five, a thick black beard, and a mullet, always smiling. As far as Israeli baseball is concerned, Dan and Shlomo have always led the way. After they finished their military service, they became the first Israelis to play college baseball in America, both as pitchers. Dan went to Georgia Southern University and tried his best to fit in with his teammates. Yeah, so I started chewing tobacco like them. I started dressing like them. Old hat with a fishing hook on it. Biscuits, gravy, grits, the whole shebang. And Shlomo to San Diego Mesa College in surfy SoCal. After the first couple of weeks, they went and bought me a bunch of, like, cargo shorts just so I could kind of <laughs> mesh in. Following college, they each went their own way. But no matter what else was happening in life, every other summer, they'd pack their bags and fly to Europe to play in international tournaments for Team Israel. I would look forward to it all year. It would keep me motivated all year to continue practicing and getting into shape. And just like when they were kids, it was never about winning. You get to go on the field in your Israel uniform, play for a purpose with guys that you've been doing this for the past 15 years. It's magical. It really is magical. 
But back in Israel, no one really cared. Obviously in Israel, nobody gives a rat's ass about baseball. Well, that isn't entirely true. Here's one Israeli who does give a rat's ass about baseball. Peter Kurtz, a normal guy. (laughs) A normal guy whose life is consumed with trying to get more Israelis to play the game. How much of my day is dealing with baseball? Uh, Probably 80%. But don't don't quote me on that because my wife will kill me. (laughs) What does she want you to be spending your day doing? Doing work, doing regular work that I get paid for. I don't get paid for this. I don't get paid for the baseball stuff. Peter actually gets paid to export faucets and kitchen sinks. And unlike Dan and Shlomo, he never really played baseball growing up. He made Aliyah off from New York almost 40 years ago. But baseball? It wasn't on his mind at all. He and his wife were settling down in Givatayim, just around the time Team Saudi was mopping the floor with Dan and Shlomo. A few years later, their eldest son joined a scrappy Little League team, and Peter agreed to help coach. Before he knew it, he became president of the IAB, the Israel Association of Baseball. So you advance very quickly in this organization. I'll say. Somewhere along the way, he developed the belief that baseball is the key to improving life in Israel. That you actually believe that baseball will make this a better place for people. Definitely. Definitely. Baseball is the way to do that, is the vehicle for, to, for doing that. When I asked him why exactly it would be baseball that would accomplish this, He talked about the slow pace, the family atmosphere, and how shall I say, the accessibility of the sport. You don't need to be tall, you don't need to be fast. Um, What's around the game? You know, not just the game itself, but what's around the game. I mean, hot dogs, obviously kosher hot dogs and everything. They don't want to put mustard on hot dogs. They know hummus. (laughs) Fine, that's okay, whatever whatever they want. Um, That's the Israeli version. To Peter, what Israel needs most is a sport that the average schmo can play. More people can play baseball than other sports. Where kids can learn how to play together, to learn sportsmanship, to learn leadership. I think all those are important things, and I'm living in Israel to make life better here. But despite these lofty goals and the countless hours he spent trying to promote baseball in Israel, Peter barely moved the needle. The most incredible game that there could be in baseball is when a pitcher throws a perfect game. Actually, during a perfect game, nothing happens. There's no hits, there's nothing, you know, but that's the most tense game that can be. Trying to explain that to Israelis is very, very difficult. 27 outs in a row, and he is being mobbed by his teammates. To be fair, interest in baseball has been growing over the years, but very slowly. For example, remember how I said that in 1989 there were just two baseball fields in the country? Well, today, there's a whopping three. Most local enthusiasts resigned themselves to the idea that baseball was, and would always remain, just a tiny sport in a tiny country. Dan Rotem knew this as well as anyone. Ever since he returned to Tel Aviv, he remained as dedicated as ever. In addition to those summer tournaments with Shlomo and the gang, he also coached and helped organize an amateur adult league. Finishing work early, schlepping your baseball equipment, and throughout this, you got to make phone calls, make sure others come, trying to get everybody to play, otherwise they'll quit. It's hard work, and it's not always fun. But the promise of a summer tournament in Europe kept him going. That one week makes the two years prior worth it. He also served on the board of the IAB together with Peter. So in other words, Dan was kind of the pillar of the local baseball scene. And much like Peter, he too had a vision for how to grow the sport in Israel start kids off with a simplified version of the game from a young age, and do so in the most Israeli way possible, by making do with what you have. Even a kickball at the beginning, something that is very accessible where you can have masses of kids. But Peter was the man in charge. He was the president, after all. And his vision was much bigger than kickball. He thought that baseball would only compete with soccer and basketball, Israel's most popular sports, if it could enter the big leagues, so to speak. And when he heard that baseball would be reinstated as an Olympic sport in the 2020 Tokyo Games, Peter saw his opportunity. The Olympics is big. The Olympics is big, and everybody knows the Olympics, and people love the Olympics. But you never think of being there. Peter dreamed of bringing Team Israel as close to that bright spotlight as he possibly could. This was actually Peter's second time around the block. A few years earlier, he helped put together a team, made up primarily of foreigners, to represent Israel in an invitational tournament called the World Baseball Classic. That team was pretty awesome, but it barely got any coverage back in Israel. This time, he hoped, would be different. After all, nothing's bigger than the Olympics. 
But like any guy who spends 20% of his time dealing with sinks and faucets, Peter is a realistic man. So he knew that any fantasies he might have of winning an Olympic medal in Tokyo should be dialed down. Instead, he set himself what he thought was a more attainable goal. And I said, my goal is to get to the Olympic qualifiers. He just wanted Team Israel to be in the mix. If we get to the Olympic qualifiers, we'll be known, we'll be famous. In his eyes, this would be the best chance he'd ever have of grabbing the country's attention and promoting the sport in Israel. But the path to the qualifying championship was pretty daunting. Israel would have to beat all the quote-unquote Israels of the world, second-rate national teams with no local baseball culture, like Lithuania or Ireland. But they'd also have to defeat the Titans, teams like Italy or the Netherlands, who win the European championship year after year. It was a long shot, and Peter knew it. But he also had a secret weapon up his sleeve. See, according to Olympic regulations, in order to represent a country, you have to be its citizen. That's how Kenyan sprinters end up running under a Norwegian flag, or Algerians represent England. Citizenship is always a sticky issue, especially when it comes to elite athletes. But in Israel, as you probably know, there's a law of return. And that means that anyone with even one Jewish grandparent can automatically become a citizen. Or in Peter speak, anyone even partially Jewish was eligible to play for Team Israel. What if, Peter thought, he could find some great Jewish ballplayers, convince them to get citizenship, and join the team? That would certainly improve his chances of getting Israel to the qualifiers. And, well, if you need Jewish ballplayers, there's really only one place to look. While Israelis couldn't care less about baseball, in America, Jews have always had a special connection to the game. In the early 20th century, when Jewish immigrants were largely excluded from mainstream culture, baseball was a way in. And since the very beginning of professional leagues, every generation had their own Jewish star, like Al Rosen or Hank Greenberg. The slugging Hank Greenberg is the next batter. Here comes the pitch, and there it goes! Greenberg famously sat out a World Series game for Yom Kippur and got a standing ovation when he walked into synagogue. And then, of course... Sandy Koufax, whose name will always remind you of strikeouts... Sandy Koufax, one of the best pitchers of all time. He is one out away from the promised land. With that kind of history, surely Peter could find some Americans to bulk up the local team. But there was one small problem. It's not like there's a directory of every Jewish ball player. Finding a Jewish-American player in America in the minor leagues is like finding a needle in a haystack. Except that, well, there actually is a directory of every Jewish ball player. It's called the Jewish Sports Review, a pretty niche print magazine run by two guys named Ephraim and Shell. Two old Jewish guys who scour the internet to look for, for Jewish baseball players. I'm not even sure if they're alive anymore today. Well, it turns out they are. Yes, my name is uh, Ephraim Moxon. Ephraim Moxon, age 78. For the last quarter century, give or take, he and his friend Shell Wallman, who's in his 80s, have collected the stats of virtually every Jewish ball player who's ever lived. Major leaguers, minor leaguers, independent leagues, even college teams. Are you the only people doing this? Yep. Nobody else would do this. So, okay, so walk me through the process. How are you finding these Jewish players? What, are you looking for Jewish-looking names, or...? If you've got a guy by the name of Schwartz, and he lives in North Dakota, 99 out of 100 times, he's not Jewish. If you've got a Schwartz living in Brooklyn, then you check him out. Why is this important? Why, why is this important to you? We always wanted to know who was Jewish. They just always wanted to know who was Jewish. As simple as that. Anyway, Ephraim and Shell's encyclopedic work-slash-obsession made life easy for Peter. All he had to do was start making calls. And even that didn't last long. Pretty soon, word spread about Team Israel, and Peter stopped having to look altogether. I get emails every day from potential players. I'm playing minor league baseball, or I'm playing high school. I got a letter from a parent. He said, my kid is 12 years old. My kid is really good. You wouldn't believe it. We'll be right back.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now back to our episode. Two events shape the life of young Peter Kurtz. In June 1967, his parents took him on a trip to Israel. It was two weeks after the end of the Six-Day War, and the Kurtzes visited the newly liberated Western Wall. Thousands of people were, were there praying. So that was when I was 10 years old. That made me a Zionist. And two years after that, in 1969... The New York Mets won the World Series, the Miracle Mets. Fast forward 50 years, and that same sense of Zionism and baseball fever brought Peter to dream up a new and highly unusual idea. An Israeli national baseball team made up of Jewish Americans. Here's Joel. Not everyone was in love with Peter's new idea. Sure, maybe it would make the national team better. But would it actually help grow the sport in Israel? Dan had serious doubts. So he proposed a compromise. I told him, you can recruit American players, but on the condition that you come to Israel for a year or two to develop the sport here. He wouldn't hear anything from it. Instead, Peter barreled on with his grand plan. And he didn't really need Dan's approval. Besides, there was no shortage of guys who were willing to come help the team. A few of them had even played in the major leagues. Some for just a cup of coffee, some for longer. And you've got ex-minor leaguers. I thought my career was over until Peter calls. Like this guy, Jeremy Wolf. I'm Jeremy Wolf, former New York Met uh, minor leaguer. Jeremy's short career ended when a disc slipped out of his back before a game in Brooklyn. Yeah, so I was running and then it just pops right out. But he was on Peter's radar. He's like, do you want to play outfield? Was that a total shock? 100%, yeah. And I'm only half Jewish. My mother's Italian. My mother's Catholic, um, which, is, which is why I'm in therapy. Therapy or not, he was Jewish enough for Peter and Jewish enough for the state of Israel. In order to play, though, Jeremy and the other new guys actually had to make Aliyah to come to Israel and become citizens. But for a chance to play on a national team, it was worth it. I got to use the locker on up for being like one of the Jews, right? And so now I get to be a role model for the rest of the Jewish players. This is my way of giving back. It's through the only thing I'm pretty much good at. Some of the recruits, like Jeremy, had thought their careers were already over. Others had been grinding it out for years in less glamorous independent leagues for little money. So what does it mean to you to be able to play again? It means everything. Israel's road to the Olympic qualifiers started on July 1st, 2019, in, of all places, Bulgaria. There, they'd have to win the first of three preliminary tournaments. Technically, the whole team was Israeli, but it was made up of two groups. Half were the American newcomers, and half were the original Israeli players, including Dan and Shlomo. It was the first time many of them had played together. I've been around really good teams, and I've been around really bad teams. And this Team Israel had, um, had something about it, something bigger than baseball. Jeremy and some of the other Americans noticed that Israelis seemed to have a unique way of playing the game. Israeli-style baseball. They don't think, right? In America, like, you're very cautious. You have to see, like, your next steps. Israelis, they go, I don't think at all. I just play. But culture shock aside, the new hybrid team dominated against Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and Ireland. None of those games were even close. But in order to keep the dream alive, they still had to beat Russia. The Russians were the team to beat. Before the deciding game with Russia, Team Israel stood in a line for Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem. Some of the new players didn't really know the words. Let's get it. Get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Late in the game, Russia was ahead. But then... They put in this pitcher who walked three guys and hit a guy, and before they knew it... Israel came from behind and won its first tournament. 
everything seemed to be going according to Peter's plan. But Israel still needed to win two more tournaments. And Peter wasn't going to leave anything to chance. Because we just, I just couldn't afford, I really wanted to have the team always be Sabres, but I also wanted to win. As more and more talented Americans lined up to join the team, even the best Israeli players, like Shlomo, had to face a new reality. There are probably players that are much, much better than you that now actually are qualified and could play. As happy as they were about the newfound international success, they didn't even know if their own place on the team was secure. Here's Dan. Yes, Peter was unwilling to commit to anything. I, 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 I want to be as loyal as possible to the players and the coaches that I can be, but I also want to improve our chances of winning. And it means hurting some people's feelings, and that's one of the hardest parts of a, a jobs of a general manager. With each round of games, Peter added more and more Americans to the team. And that meant that more and more Israelis were kicked off. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, it worked. Team Israel just kept winning. But the Israeli-style baseball that Jeremy talked about was becoming a smaller and smaller part of the Israeli team. Dan had a hard time understanding how any of this made sense. Now the national team, the thing that motivates such a core group is taken away. How does this connect to growing the baseball in Israel? And sure enough, before long, even Dan's spot on the team was in jeopardy. Peter called me before the tournament and said, we're not sure yet. He told him he was trying to recruit a former major league pitcher named Bleich. We're not sure if we can get him to Israel to get his passport in time for this. If Bleich came, Dan would be out. But if it all fell through, he would keep his spot on the team. So there were a few days <laughs> I was really hoping, almost praying. It was all he could do. Finally, his phone rang. It was Peter. And then he said, we're going to get Bleich there, so thank you. Goodbye. That was the whole conversation. It was maybe a minute. Dan, who had been on Israeli national team since that first tournament in 1989, was heartbroken. For everyone that was flown to Israel, spent a few days here, was given a passport and told them, congratulations, you're not in Israel. There's somebody who was told, you're no longer Team Israel, okay? And these are key guys that made the program here work, ultimately including myself. There were now just four Israelis left. One of them was Shlomo. At the next tournament, it soon became clear that Peter's dream had come true. We won our first few games, and then we beat France, so we knew we were going to the Olympic qualifiers. But perhaps they began openly wondering, they could do even better. I just wanted to get the Olympic qualifiers. <laughs> and then I realized that, you know, you want more. Whenever you go forward, you want more. If they could just keep it up and win a few more games, they'd actually go to the Olympics. Chilly, raw air on a Sunday afternoon, late September, here in Parma. It all came down to that game in Parma, Italy, the one that started off our story. It was the final game of the tournament, and a win would send Team Israel to Tokyo. Even though the stakes were so high, no Israeli TV station aired the game. Instead, it was streamed on YouTube. The 2-2, line, pass first base, and it slices foul. Fans, including Dan, watching from his home in Tel Aviv, were chiming in in the comments section. Early on, an old friend of his typed, why aren't you out there with our boy Shlomo? You're one of the originals. Dan just wrote, ouch, big ouch. He didn't say much more after that. Now, I'd like to say that the game was close, that some heroic play in the bottom of the ninth inning changed everything. But this just wasn't one of those games. Israel ahead by 10, 11 runs on eight hits as they held South Africa to just one run. In the last inning, with Israel one out away from winning, Dan watched as his old friend and teammate, Shlomo Lippitz, was called into the game. A look at the 40-year-old right-hander Shlomo Lipitz who comes in. He was the only native Israeli on the field. The uh, you know, I didn't really put a meaning. I think me being the symbol of Israel baseball, it's all symbolic. I was just just happy to be there. Shlomo, who could remember playing for the national team in sweatpants, now had a chance to send his country to the Olympics. 
Lippitt's on to try and get the last three strikes. He deals with Dale Feltman, his first pitch just missing inside for ball one. Dan never told me this directly, but I assume it would have been hard for him not to imagine himself up there on the mound. What he did say was that he was happy for his friend and for everyone else wearing a Team Israel uniform. I really, I have dear friends on this team, and I want nothing but success for them. He watched as one South African batter got on base. Shlomo Lippitz, set and ready. Ground ball, hit to third. Knocked down by Prenprace, and the game will continue. And then... I'm about to throw the pitch. The pitch. And this ball's flown out to right field. Simon Rosenbaum reaches up, and that's the out that ends it. We could say it, it's official next year in Tokyo. Israel's going to the Olympic Games. On the field, it was pandemonium. I'm just like jumping up and down, and then just such genuine happiness. Like everyone's like just looking at each other, giving just genuine loving hugs, telling each other we love each other. Now we could say it out loud. We freaking made it to Tokyo. Peter had accomplished the impossible. I had tears in my eyes. I was there on the side with my son, who was with us. The YouTube feed was blowing up with comments. Excitement, congratulations, disbelief. But Dan remained quiet. Are you excited at some level that Israel will be in the Olympics? I'm still too hurt to be excited. I mean, I am going to watch the game just like I watched the qualifying rounds. But the whole enterprise is, is too, is too painful. From the start, Peter had been clear about his motivations. I'm not doing this to put a team together of Jewish American players to win a gold medal in the Olympics. That's not my goal. You know, that's a byproduct of what we're doing. But the main goal is to increase baseball in Israel, to grow baseball in Israel. In the end, Team Israel achieved everything Peter could have hoped for, and then some. Which leads to a very important question. Did it actually work? Well, not according to Dan. Look, after Israel qualified, if you actually count numbers, you would stay in the single digits in how many people joined, if at all. You didn't see any bump in registration of kids, nothing. And that's not just sour grapes. He's objectively right. I checked with Peter. Unfortunately, the numbers are not there. And surprisingly, I really don't know how to explain that, why the numbers are not there. Um, I think baseball all over the world is going down. Um, that, does, that doesn't help me too, too much to, to know that, because here it is where I wanted to go up. But both men somehow remain optimistic. Peter still believes the kids will come. And Dan, he has his own dreams. In 20 years, I hope I will be leading the Israeli national baseball team for its competition in Europe. He sees himself the way he always has, as a ball player. In January 2020, right before COVID came into our lives and upended everything, Peter flew in some of the Team Israel players from their homes across America to Israel, the country they represent. They put on a couple PR events. One was to meet the kids. You, how do you throw a fastball? Show me. It was raining, so everyone relocated to an indoor gymnasium in Ranana. About 100 kids spread out along the wooden floorboards with their gloves and ball caps. In each corner, a different member of Team Israel was leading a baseball drill, fielding fly balls, base running, pitching grips. As I expected, most of the kids were American or had American parents. Unfortunately, some of them were Yankees fans. Jews aren't supposed to like the Yankees. They're supposed to like the Mets. All the Jews. No, nobody That's, likes the Mets. It's you the like Mets. the Mets. Like the but Mets. quite a few of the kids, just like Dan Rotem, were born here and had Israeli parents. What's your name? Ori. It's my first year, so I'm still learning the rules, and it's very fun. I got this movie from my aunt, which is The Sandlot, and like it really inspired me to play. Did you know that there was baseball here before that? Uh, no, I, I've never even heard about baseball. Some of the kids had perfect matching uniforms and brand new gloves. Some, I was happy to see, were wearing sweatpants. At the end, the players signed autographs. Thanks. No problem. Practice at home, guys. And Danny Valencia, the biggest star on the team, impressed all the kids by calling up his big league buddies on FaceTime. At 9 o'clock, 
When it was supposed to be over, baseballs were still flying all over the place. No one wanted to go home. A couple days later, Team Israel was gone. Gone from the country they play for and back to where they live. All that was almost exactly a year ago. In late March, of course, the Olympics were postponed because of the pandemic. As we record this, they're scheduled to begin in July, but it's unclear whether that will really happen. If they do, the world will be watching as a scrappy team of has-beens and wannabes takes the field with Israel written across their chest and the Star of David on their hats. Shlomo will probably be one of them. Dan will be home, watching. What happens next is anyone's guess. It's baseball. Anything can happen. Joel Shupak produced, scored, and sound designed that story with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weisblum created the mix. This is actually Joel's last episode with Israel's story. As you move on, Joel, we just want to say what a pleasure it's been to work with you all these years. We've learned so much from you and have been inspired by your hard work, creativity, and talent. Be well and know that you will always be part of the Israel Story family. Thanks to David Leishman, Alon Leishman, Ophir Katz, Zach Penprace, and many other members of Team Israel, past, present, and future, whom we talked to while working on the piece. There's a lot more about Israel and baseball that we weren't able to include in this story. But if you're interested in the topic, check out the films Holy Land Hardball and Heading Home. We'll post links to both of them on our site, israelstory.org. As always, thanks also to Esther Werdiger and Wayne Hoffman from Tablet Magazine, and to Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagg, and Joy Levitt. And that, dear friends, is it. We've reached the end of our fifth season. It's been a crazy year and a wild ride. Our most challenging and most rewarding season yet. And we thank each and every one of you for listening, for supporting the show, and for being the reason we do what we do. During the off-season, you can catch up on all our past episodes on our site or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And don't forget to join our Facebook community, where vibrant conversations continue year-round. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. And lastly, if you want to help us continue to grow, share your favorite episode on social media, tell your friends, and most significantly, rate and review us wherever you listen to Israel Story. It's easy, and it really does help. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Mital, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Joel Shupak, Skyler Inman, Marie Rude, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro from the Podglomerate is our marketing director. Clara Fug, Michael Vivier, and Alicia Vergara are wonderful production interns. I want to say a big thank you to Clara, Michael, and Alicia, who are finishing up their internship this month. You work tirelessly, are incredibly gifted, and we can't wait to hear all the wonderful radio stories each of you will go on to produce in the years to come. I'm Mishi Harman, and it has been a true honor to spend the last 30 weeks together. We'll be back, hopefully this summer, with Season 6. So till then, from all of us here at Israel Story, Shalom Shalom, and Yalla Bye. <laughs> למצוא בכל דבר עוד יופי ולרקוד עד שנופלים מעייפות או אהבה 
מכל הרגעים בזמן למצוא אחד לאחוז בו, להגיד שהגענו. תמיד לזכור לרגע לעצור ולהודות על מה שיש ומאיפה שבאנו. לחבק אותה בלילה, כשהיא נרדמת אז כל העולם נרגע. לנשום אותה עמוק לדעת שתמיד אני אהיה שם בשבילה. לא לפחד להתאהב שישבר הלב, לא לפחד בדרך להיאבר. לקום כל בוקר ולצאת על החיים ולנסות הכל לפני שייגמר. לחפש מאיפה באנו ולחזור בסוף תמיד להתחלה. למצוא בכל דבר עוד יופי ולרקוד עד שנופלים מעייפות או אהבה. מכל הרגעים בזמן למצוא אחד לאחוז בו, להגיד שהגענו. תמיד לזכור לרגע לעצור ולהודות על מה שיש ומאיפה שבאנו. לחבק אותה בלילה כשהיא נרדמת אז כל העולם נרגע. לנשום אותה עמוק לדעת שתמיד אני אהיה שם בשבילה. לחפש מאיפה באנו ולחזור בסוף תמיד להתחלה למצוא בכל דבר עוד יופי ולרקוד עד שנופלים מעייפות או אהבה מכל הרגעים בזמן למצוא אחד לאחוז בו להגיד שהגענו תמיד לזכור לרגע לעצור ולהודות על מה שיש ומאיפה שבאנו לחבק אותה בלילה כשהיא נרדמת אז כל העולם נרגע לנשום אותה עמוק לדעת שתמיד אני אהיה שם בשבילה מכל הרגעים בזמן למצוא אחד לאחוז בו להגיד שהגענו, תמיד לזכור לרגע לעצור ולהודות על מה שיש ומאיפה שבאנו. אז לחבק אותה בלילה, כשהיא נרדמת אז כל העולם נרגע. לנשום אותה עמוק לדעת שתמיד אני אהיה שם בשבילה. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BolinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.